Welcome to the He Shoots, He Draws podcast, the show about photography and design, with your hosts, Glyn Dewis and Dave Clayton. Hello and welcome back to another episode of He Shoots, He Draws. Now, this is a very special episode that Dave and me wanted to get out to you because this is part of an interview that I did recently with a gentleman by the name of Ted Owens. Now, Ted's now 94 and he was a Royal Marine in 4-1 Commando during World War II and saw action during D-Day as he was on the landing craft that landed on Sword Beach. I first became aware of Ted having seen a portrait of him taken by a friend of mine, Ian Allers, and I immediately got in touch with Ian and he very kindly arranged it so that I could meet Ted, who lives over in Pembroke Dock, an eight and a half hour round trip from where I currently live. So huge thank you to Ian. So I met Ted a couple of weekends back now at his home, along with his great friend Dio Tool, who checks in on Ted every single day to make sure he's doing okay. And time spent with Ted was wonderful. Talking with him, I had a real mix of emotion. I was in awe hearing stories of what he'd seen and done as a child and through adulthood. There were times I had to fight back the tears, and there were times when Ted had died myself simply laughing out loud. I can't even begin to explain how honoured I felt to spend time with Ted. Ted and others like him who served during World War II are the real heroes. Forget your Batman, your Superman and all the others. It's Ted and his colleagues, his brothers in arms, that are the real heroes. People who selflessly fought for our freedom and many who gave the ultimate sacrifice. Now I'm going to spend more time with Ted over the coming weeks and months because stories like Ted's that have shaped our history must be recorded. Taking his portrait was an absolute honour and actually doing this project feels like the real reason I found photography or rather as someone recently said to me, photography found me and I know that sounds corny but it really really does feel that way. Anyway, enjoy this short recording of my time with Royal Marine 4-1 Commando, Ted Owens. Oh well, we didn't have a clue where we were going or what we were doing. The only thing we had, we had French money. And we thought, well, it's got to be France. And that's the only news we had. Anyway, when we was going in onto the beach on a bee landing craft, which was carrying two tanks as well, and uh, it came over on the RT, the big radio, very, very loud, and it says, right, old boys, who said it? I don't know. I think it was Lord Lovett himself. I don't know for sure. He said, take your tin hats off, throw them over the side and wear your green berets with pride. I think it was a crazy thing to say, but we all done it. Every man in the unit, we landed there with our green berets on. And uh, we wore them all through the war. Not once did we wear a tenat. And uh, that's something to be very, very proud of. And uh, when I landed on the beach, it's obvious there was a couple of dead men there and wounded. And so then we realised it was a real thing. And right in front of us at the top of the beach, there was a huge... A hotel, and the Germans either fortified it to look like a big bunker. All the windows were all blocked up, bricked up, and uh, just left apertures for them to fight to fire through. And on the lower deck, they had two heavy guns. The second floor, they had all machine guns, 
and the top and up on the roof was all riflemen. So it was like um, a coconut gallery to them. And we were under very, very heavy fire. So alongside of us was a tank which had been knocked out. The one that was in front of me was a flare tank. It had the big chains in the front, and he run up and down the beach to make sure there was no mines for us to step on. They all collected behind the tank, and the tank would take us up the beach. And um, when it came over on the other, of all the noise that was there, you could still hear the tonoi giving shouting orders. And the order was, concentrate your fire on the hotel. So I said, I can't see from there. So I run over to where this tank had been knocked out, laid my rifle over the back end of the tank. And when I looked through my sights, I could see right through into the aperture. And it was only about 100, 150 yards. I couldn't miss. I fired about five, six rounds into the aperture at figures I could see moving. And uh, next thing over comes a shell, hits the top of the tank, and all the metal came down on top of me, all in my left shoulder, my chest and my back. And I don't know today how many pieces they took out of my shoulder, but I've still got 14 pieces on metal in my left shoulder now. And uh, two of them are actually embedded in the shoulder bone. And uh, um, I laid on the deck. I didn't go unconscious, but in terrific pain. And I tried to move and I was absolutely paralyzed. I tried to turn over. I failed. Next thing I heard, how long I've been lying there, I don't know. It seemed like hours to me. I could still hear everything that was going on. Then I heard a voice saying, oh, this poor blight in, in good Welsh, this poor blight have had it. And they turned me over and my eyes moved. And they said, oh, he's alive. So they patched me up, left me there. Next thing, I was put onto a stretcher and taken to a hospital ship. I finished up in Cardiff Hospital three days after. Uh, that was my first experience of D-Day. Um, after two and a half months, I went back to my unit and I was excused all equipment, only my rifle and my side pack, which I carried on my belt. I could not wear no nothing, no webbing because of all the wounds on my back and my shoulder. And I went back to my unit to a place called Pont Levec, and that was a one a hell of a battle. I went from there then all the way up through France. I was on the relief of Dunkirk, the 51st Highland Div. I'd surrounded it and they'd boxed in about couple of thousand Germans and we had the job there to hold them in hold them there I was there for three weeks solid and uh, then up then we went on we've moved on to a place called Zeebrugge and that was a terrible place because a ship had been sunk 
and 500, so I've been told, RAF personnel were washed up on the beach and we had the job of going down and volunteer because we were out of the line to go and carry them up off the beach. And that was the most terrible thing I've ever seen. And then uh, a couple of weeks after the landing craft came in, picked us up, took us to the big island of Walcheren, which is off the Dutch coast. It was heavily fortified, and we landed there, and it, I reckon myself it was worse than D-Day. As, um, it was a terrible lot of gunfire. Anyway, um, we went up the second day, um, I got wounded. My two mates in front of me got killed with a, a mine. They'd stepped on a mine, which when you step on it, it comes out to the ground and it's about three foot and then it explodes and it was full of all bearings. And one of them went into my kneecap. Yeah, when I got that in my kneecap, they said to us, dig in for the night. Too many mines ahead of us. So we dug in and lay there and it was just getting dusk. And I was looking through my sights on my rifle and I spotted some Germans running back and forth. So I said to the corporal, first of all, I shouted to the corporal, movements ahead of you. And he passed it on to the sergeant. The sergeant said, where are they, Tom? And I said, the tower, I said, three fingers to the right of the church tower, two fingers to the left of the windmill. And he looked through his binoculars, of course. He said, I got them. He phoned back then to White Troop, which was a mortar team, and they plastered the place with mortars all night long. Then the following morning, they said, right oh, move forward. Get your peg sticker out and be cautious. That was your peg sticker, was your bayonet. Of course, I got mine out, and I went to move forward, and I couldn't move. I said to my number two, I said, Christ, there's something wrong here. I said, I can't move. And he looked, he, he rolled over to me and he looked. Christ, he said, you've done something to your knee, a lot of blood on your kneecap. So he reported the sergeant, he said, Taffy, you've been hit? He said, um, okay, he said, um, you stay with him. And when we get a lull, get him back to the CRS. And that was a casualty clearance station. That was in a schoolroom. I went in there to the orderly and he put my leg up on a chair and he said, I'll clean it off. And he got a spatula, put some cotton wool on it, dipped it in iodine and he was going over it and the ball bearing fell out. And he said, there's what your wound is, he said. And I didn't know I'd been wounded. I, I thought I'd hurt it on the way down. Yeah. I stepped on a pebble or a brook or something. And uh, he said, you were lucky. Even now, they got white skin over it. And he reckoned it, because it was hot, it cauterized itself. And uh, the hole, you can actually feel the hole there now, if I was feeling it. But uh, after that, then we went on. I went to took some prisoners back to Ostend in the landing craft. Another long story. 
And after that, it went back to my unit the following day and I rejoined my unit. I was only out 24 hours and uh, went back then to the place called Domburg. They capitulated and then we had a college quiet fortnight there and then they had the Battle of the Bulge. And panic stations, they got us all into wagons and took us up to a place called Togenbosch. And uh, it was a small village just outside and the Germans had infiltrated there, so we had the job of trying to find them. Welcome, especially the German snipers. And I was going down the street, looking very cautiously, I looked round the corner, and whether it was a stray bullet or a sniper had a go at me, how he missed my head, I don't know. But the bullet passed my nose, hit the wall, and sh- shattered, and a piece of the bullet went into my windpipe, right through my windpipe, and it's still in there today. And, uh, of course, I went down on the deck, couldn't breathe. They rushed me off to a Canadian hospital in a place called Malines, and uh, they put a pipe down my nose and helped me to breathe. After two days, they put another pipe down my throat so they could feed me. And I was like out for a couple of weeks. And uh, of course it all healed up and they left the metal in there. And it's still there today. If you like to feel it, you'll feel it. Just run your hand across there. I can, I can feel that. Yeah. Yeah. That's it, it's still in there today. And uh, of course it's healed up, it's not doing me no harm. It's only moved from my chin down to there, and there's where it's been ever since. For the last 30 years, it's been there. So I used to be a hell of a scrounger anywhere. And of course, that's, we had strict orders not to wander into different places because the Germans, they were very, very good at booby traps and mines. They used to have a mine called a shoe mine. It's only about nine by four square little box or wood and the only metal in it was the igniter and a nine pound pressure it would go off and it would blow your ankle off or your leg off and uh, there was loads of them about anyway uh, there was these big underground gun emplacements so I went now to go down one of these and I picked up a Belgium torch which was like a dynamo you press it and you got a hell of a good light. So you had a long tunnel, I would say about 15, 20 yards, going down into the bunker where the big guns were. And uh, I went to the hedge and cut myself a nice thin stick. And I was going down the tunnel with my torch and I was holding the stick down in front of me in case there was any wires for booby traps. And uh, I got to the end where the guns were, and I looking around, there was a couple of uniforms hanging up, out knife, took the badges off, and uh, keeping them for a souvenir. And as I was looking around, there was a box on the floor. 
So I very gently picked the box up and had a look around it. I thought there's no wires, nothing on it. Opened it up and it was a box of very cartridges what they used to fire up into the air, different colours. I thought, oh, lovely. We now have some practice shooting with them. Put them on the beach because that's one thing they allowed us to do. Always keep your eye in. Practice any time you can. So... I was just coming back up through the tunnel and I heard some voices and I said, oh, bloody hell, I've been caught. I'm for the fizzer. And all of a sudden I heard one saying to the other, I wonder if there's any booby traps here. And of course, all you could see was the square light at the end of the tunnel and two figures coming down and they were striking matches. And one said to the other, no. No uh, booby traps here. They really been here and cleared it all out. So it clicked in my mind, so I dropped a box of very cartridges. I could see one grab the other. What's that? And I went, shh. And they said it's a booby trap. They were gone. They went out to that tunnel, of course, I busted out laughing. I thought they would have heard me. They didn't, so I run to the end of the torn tunnel to shout to them. But they were like a pair of gypsy grams. They were going down the bloody road. And, uh, and perhaps it's a good job I didn't tell them. They might give me a pair of th thick lips. But uh, they were RAF boys, they were. And I always loved to have met them to tell them. That's my experience of the war. Now, you can check out the portrait I did of Ted over on my portfolio site at glyndewisphotography.com and you'll see Ted there proudly wearing his green beret. But that's all for this special episode. Thanks so much for listening. Uh -huh.